Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Romans 12. We're beginning in Romans 12 and going through uh, the middle of the 13th chapter this morning. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name's Mark. I have the privilege of being uh, one of the ministers here at the church, and we're grateful you've joined us. Uh, We're in week 10 of our series through the book of Romans. I believe it's one of the most impacting and destructive books in the New Testament in that it destroys our preconceived notions of how we earn our way to God, and it reveals to us exactly what God did to allow us the opportunity to draw close to Him. And we're going to just jump right in this morning in uh, Romans 12, verse 1, where he begins with the word, therefore. Paul uses that word strategically uh, in his writings to transition us very often from what he's previously said to how we live it out. And what you're going to understand is the first 11 chapters of Romans deal with directly with the work that God has done, the faithfulness of God, and how God justifies us in Jesus. And then when we begin chapter 12 going forward, he begins to teach us how do we live this out. So the therefore goes from the theology into the praxis, the practical living, what this looks like in our daily lives. How does God's work uh, cause us to become different? Let's begin. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. What Paul's about to do in chapters 12 and 13 is to show us what grace looks like as we sacrifice ourselves to God. And some of your translations say present your body uh, or to offer your bodies. And this is a sacrificial technical term. That word present or offer means to give a sacrifice, to go before and offer to God. And if you go in the Old Testament, you're going to understand that the sacrifices of the Old Testament fall under one of two categories very simply. The first one is reconciliation, making yourself right with God after you've been wrong. And the second is the celebration of reconciliation. Most sacrifices fall under one of those two columns. Either you're appealing to God to make up for your sin, or you're thanking God for his making up for your sin. Make sense? So I, I enjoy on a Sunday morning when we gather, one of the values that we have here as a church is that we choose to take the Lord's Supper every time we gather. That's a choice we make as a church. And we also collect an offering, not to simply pay bills, but as Scott shared, to help others present the gospel throughout the world and allow people to draw close to him. One of those is a sacrifice of reconciliation, God's work on the cross through Jesus. The other is a celebration of that reconciliation, our investing so others know the good news we've received. So Paul says we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. So to offer ourselves as a sacrifice toward the reconciliation and the celebration of God's reconciliation is what we're called to do. And what Paul's about to do in these remaining verses is he's going to walk us through the different levels of how the grace of God, the perfect, pleasing will of God, changes all of our lives. He's going to begin by how it affects us, 
Then he's going to share how it affects the local body of believers we participate in, our church. And then it's going to affect our other relationships. And then it's going to go all the way to how we respond to authority over us. So the key of the morning is, how does this renewing of our minds that he calls us to do, how does this challenge to refuse to conform to this present world by the renewing of our minds and the power available in that, how does that help us live? How do we use the transforming experience of knowing who we are and how do we experience it and demonstrate it and live out grace? Therefore, if everything in chapters 1 through 11 is true, and it is, therefore, how do you and I choose to live? By presenting our lives as a sacrifice. Let's begin as he makes the distinctions of what it looks like to live out grace. The graceful evaluation of ourself. How do we see ourselves in light of grace? Verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. In verse 1 he says, in view of God's mercy, present yourselves. And in verse 3 he says, by the grace given. So there's two things we need to know from verse 3. There's two principles that are very, very important to us. The first is this. By the grace of God, we know who we are. Sinners saved by him. And that tells us we're no better than any other person. That's the first thing we learned. If we needed to be saved by the sacrifice of Jesus, we were the cause of Jesus' death, and it's by his grace that we're saved. I am better than nobody else. The second thing I learn is that in light of that, God has created me for a purpose. The two things I need you to hold on to today. Know who you are in Christ, and if you know who you are in Christ, you know that you're no better than anybody else, no matter what they've done. You're no better than anybody else. And the second thing we learn is we are here for a purpose, and that is to introduce other people to that same grace. To let other people know that they are valued by God and always will be valued by God. This is the renewed mind. This is focusing ourselves on the truth of Jesus so that in, within our own relationship with God, we know where we stand. For those of you that are beating yourselves up, understand that you've been saved by grace, and God took you as you were, and he forgave you completely. And for those of us who struggle on occasion of feeling better than other people who are doing tragic and horrible things, remember where you were when Christ came to die for you. You were his enemy. You were estranged. You were a sinner. When we understand who we are, the grace of God changes our mind about ourselves and about others. Then he proceeds further. Let's talk about our gifted function in the church. How does grace affect us in our collaboration with other believers? Verse 4. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not always have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Key line there. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is in leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is in showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. What Paul is establishing here is that God gifted each one of us by the grace of Jesus Christ. Remember the word grace is gift. By the gift of Jesus, the grace and mercy of Jesus, 
God has gifted each one of us. He's given all of us something to contribute. We live in an age of specialization. We hire people to do things for us that we could do for ourselves because we're busy. We even do it in the church. We live in an age of specialization. Some of you are neglecting the gift that God's given you because you're looking around saying, I don't know how to offer it, or someone does that better than me. And it doesn't matter if they're doing it better than you. It's are you offering your gift as a blessing? The independent Christian who is not engaged in the body life of a church is not a Christian, according to Scripture. You can't live independently of the body of faith and read passages like this of Paul who says, when the grace of Christ becomes yours, then you will work diligently to present your gift of grace to bless others so that they know our Savior. So there's no Lone Ranger Christians. This last fall we did a series called Why Church? And it wasn't just to promote church attendance. It was to let you know that the church is part of God's plan for your continuing walk with him. It's not just something that introduced you to an escape hatch from hell. The church is God's plan to teach us how to live. And the grace of God brings salvation to allow us to be a blessing to others. So Paul says that you live out your grace, not only being aware of who you are, but being aware that you're here for everybody else, not for yourself anymore. The selfless existence of contributing to something bigger than ourselves. And then Paul talks even more about what that will look like. How are we to live in fellowship with other believers? So let's look at the grace found in our fellowship. Verse 9. And as, as I begin to read this, I'm not going to decipher every phrase because they are so plainly written, they mean exactly what they say. We'll talk about the implications of them. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. This is the renewed mind in the body of Christ. That we are here for one another. That we're not better than anybody else, and everyone else is valued. Michael talked about that so well last week when he encapsulated chapters 9, 10, and 11 together. Remember what he said, if you take one of, these, one of those lines out of any of those chapters, you miss the whole importance of what he's saying. That everyone is able to be saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Everybody. So how do we treat everybody? Not just a distinction of those we agree with. But how do we live in unity? How do we live collaboratively? How do we live in fellowship? It's not insisting on my rights, but totally insisting on what is right, the renewed mind in the church. And he he challenged us to bless those who curse us, to live counterintuitively to the world in which we live. And then he extends it. Not only how do we deal with people that are believers, but how do we deal with everybody? Our enemies, those that stand against us and are trying to make our lives difficult. Let's look at grace in our world, verse 17. Do not repay evil or anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Yikes. Getting even is natural, isn't it? I'm not proud of this moment, and I've already been judged first hour, so I'll open myself up to further. When, I was, when we first had Alex, and he was a little toddler, I loved playing with him. He was this little ball of dough. He was the cutest little thing, and he thought I was hilarious, so we got along fine. And I would play with him, and he would giggle, and I loved just playing with him, and we'd put on a, a Barney video, and he would try to sing. I loved that little kid, but when he was really a little tot, I was holding him one time, and I wasn't holding him securely enough, and his head swung forward and hit me right in the mouth. His forehead went right on my lip and jammed it against my large teeth. And I want to tell you at that moment, I thought, oh, poor guy. He didn't mean it. No, my first thought was, how do I hurt him in proportion to the way he just hurt me? (laughs) First hour looked at me like, you're our preacher. (laughs) Isn't it our natural instinct to return pain for pain, church? When someone hurts us, We want to hurt them, but we don't want to hurt them equally. He had no teeth, so I couldn't administer the same pain. And I didn't hurt him. I handed him to his mother and left because I realized I'm evil. I wanted him. I wanted him. I wanted to say to him, how'd you like it? I'm an adult. He's a baby. But he hurt me. I'm not advocating that we get even. In fact, I'm here to tell you, That Jesus says when you understand grace that you're no better than anybody else and that everybody is able to be loved by God. When we understand that, we have to choose, listen to me, you have to choose in advance what you're going to do to somebody who hurts you or you will hurt them back. By the grace of Jesus, knowing who we are, knowing how we are gifted to bless other people, if we don't choose in advance that we will never repay evil for evil, we will repay evil with evil. It's in our nature. If you don't understand that, then try to get out on to 96 off a D after this service ends when the idiot in front of you won't take a risk. (laughs) This church would have a great testimony if only the corner of D and 96 were Christian when we left. Because our nature is to repay evil with evil, especially in those impromptu moments when someone hurts us. And I know if you're anything like me right now, you're challenging me and you ought to. And you're saying, I'm not talking about a baby whose bobblehead hits you in the mouth. I'm talking about an employer who took advantage, who took my money, who lied about who I was. When someone intentionally hurts you, and I'm telling you right now that by the gospel of grace, if I am no better than any other man and every other person is equally loved by God, I must choose this moment that I will live by grace and not by justice. Because Paul says that is when the testimony is most powerful. In fact, I love what he says here. He says, live peacefully with one another. And I love it because he says, if it's possible. Pretty powerful passage, right? Do what you can and don't worry about what they do. If you're only going to offer peace to people you're sure will offer peace back to you, you're not actually offering peace. Peace is when we love 
the well-being of another person over and above ourselves. And as much as it is possible, live at peace with one another. And remember also that we are not to repay evil with evil. While evil actions must be punished, that does that mean that we're the punisher? And this is hard. I still love the fact that our country is sensitive enough that you can read a newspaper and find a, a set of parents whose child may have been killed, let's say, in an automobile accident by a drunk driver, and you'll see that those parents will go to the judge and say they wish the, they wish the person who did it no harm. And they allow the justice system to play itself out. I love in that moment that you can see the love of Christ is pouring out from people, saying that we're going to allow God to judge this because truth is, God's better at it than we are. If you and I don't know the heart of another individual, how, can, how dare we attack the heart? We have to trust that the Lord God will do that. And God's judgment is not only more effective, it also is all about reconciliation and redemption. God punishes so that he can redeem the heart. He doesn't punish so that the heart gets crushed. And in my own nature, I know that I'm broken. And it's hard to live at peace when someone's hurt me. But by the grace of God, if I am no better than anybody else and everybody else has the opportunity to know the love of Christ, who am I to deny them that? So then we go from not only my level of understanding grace, but how I relate to you as believers, but how do I relate to those who aren't believers? Then we go to the, one of the most powerful passages Paul announces, and that is what do you and I do with authority? Because we in America, we don't like authority. What does the renewed mind look like in a secular world? How are we to live? And I need to call a time out here for just a second. I need to say something very specific. <clears throat> I want to be very, very clear with you. It is not my right or my responsibility as your pastor to tell you how to vote. I know in some groups that's pretty common. It won't be here. That is outside of my purview and it's outside of my mandate as the preacher of the gospel. However, it is clearly within my direct responsibility as a pastor to tell you how to pray for this election. I'm not here to tell you how to vote. I'm telling you how to pray. In fact, if I can be bold enough, I'm going to take a risk. If you're not willing to pray, then I beg you not to vote. Because if this country and God's plan is not to change this world by power, and he's not going to change it by an elected official, God is going to change it by love and mercy from the very beginning. Because here's what I know, and this is why I say what I say. God is still in charge no matter who's elected. And God is more powerful than any political party. I don't care what your affiliation is. I have no clue what my affiliation is. But I know my ultimate affiliation is to the authority and sovereignty of our God. And so if you're not praying for elected officials, if you're not praying for elected officials, then I'm going to ask you as your pastor, why not? Are you fearful that an elected official is going to alter what God is in control of, then overcome your fear and give this to the Lord because he is capable, he is able, and most of all, church, he's willing. In light of all of that, let's hear how God feels and has challenged us to live by grace when it comes to authority. Verse, chapter 13, verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. I want to be very clear about this. The authority that God's speaking about is not a singular person who's an elected officer. It's the position he's put in place. God has established authority in all of our lives. Parents, law officers, 
judges, elected officials, school teachers. You can go on and on. There's authority in all of our lives from the time we're developed. It's not saying that God has put every single person in office. God created the office. And people who live by grace live for what is best for everybody, not just what is best for themselves. And I think sometimes we Christians get confused. We try to elect officials to do for us what we want them to do for us instead of understanding that they are to do the collective best. We can debate whether they do the collective best, but God established authority, and it is good for us to be under authority, whether it's the church elders, whether it's your parents, or whether it's even a president you would not have elected. God has established these things for our own good, and the purpose of authority is found in verses 3 and 4. For rulers hold no, no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoers. And if you're anything like me, and I hope you're not, you're sitting there right now going, yeah, yeah, but Paul didn't have any clue what's going on in our country. I want to remind you, Who was in charge when Paul wrote this letter? Rome. A Caesar who would have him killed. A Caesar who persecuted the local church. Who used them as a scapegoat. The the whole position. Paul is saying, listen, even when Caesar is in control, he's not. God is. So live out the mercy and grace you've received and let God do the work he intends to do. Verse 5. Therefore, uh uh-oh, theology followed by practice. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of the possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. See, we are able to critique the work of our officials, but we must not diminish the office and authority that they've been given. We don't have to agree with every decision they make. And if you're wondering, is there ever time to practice civil disobedience, read the book of Acts, the answer is yes. When our governing authorities are in direct opposition to what the word of God says, you and I have already declared our allegiance, have we not? But how did even Peter and John declare their allegiance to God over the governing authorities? They said, punish us as you must. We will preach the word of God. The apostle Paul always respected the authorities over him, but he also respected God more, and he even accepted the punishment due him for preaching the gospel. I think one of the greatest testimonies in the world today is when we stand up and we choose God respectfully over the authorities that are not respecting God. See, the reality of all of this, whether it's your own understanding that you are no better than anybody else and everyone is able to be loved by God, or whether it's living and using your gifts within the body of Christ, or whether or not it's just loving your fellow Christians, or even loving your enemies, or bowing to the authorities in front of you and submitting yourself not to them, but to the God who placed them in position. Paul then gives us the reality of our obligation in the final seven verses, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. 
The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So Paul concludes this section by talking about what the renewed mind of grace looks like with the same, offering the same love we received. Verse 11. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. And what is Paul saying here? In this great anthemic moment, Paul is saying to all of us, and I'll ask you the question, I hear Paul asking my heart as I read his words, is God still in charge? then hold on to the hope you have because God is no lesser a God. He's not gotten older and senile. He's not disinterested and distracted. He's not in heaven punishing us. God is looking down saying, love will work, love. Mercy will work, use mercy. He's not gonna change the world by authority. He's not gonna change it by political parties. He's not gonna change it by a power. He's gonna change it by his love and his mercy. And when we all come under the love and mercy of God, It'll all come together in the most beautiful of ways, even when you and I can't see it. We've all lived in a season where someone has been placed in authority over us, and we thought, oh, this is the end. I know in in my 20-some years of preaching, every national election has caused people to start packing up their bags and getting ready for the return of the Lord. I'm ready for him to come back. I'm not packing my bags because there's nothing here I'm taking with me. I'm going to wait on God because my God is still in charge. It is closer to the day of his return than it's ever been. And we ought to live in such a way, knowing that we live in a world where we can offer love even when it's not reciprocated because it is the way God changed us and it will be the way God changes this world. Verse 12. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, Not in sexual immorality and debauchery. Not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, close yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Paul uses this putting on and putting off. And he says, put off the lies the world is telling you and put on the truth of the gospel of God. Put off the things that satisfy you for a moment that you know are wrong in your soul, but you continue to do them because you think you're entitled to some pleasure in this world, and instead put off a sacrifice of your bodies. And it's amazing to me when I read this. Throughout the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul uses the body as a metaphor for our sinful nature. But notice, after the, the reconciliation of God and the Holy Spirit comes upon us, our bodies now become testimonies of worship. So you put off the things of the flesh that are evil and corrupt, that give you a momentary satisfaction, and instead you put on Jesus Christ and you hold to a sacrifice of your body to show the perfect and noble and good will of God. You put off desperation and you put on hope. You put off fear of a political candidate and you hold to the hope that God is still sovereign no matter who's in office. We choose to live by a power that says, I know who I am. When the world says, no, you're what you make and what you have and how you look. And my gospel says, no, you know who you are because of that man on the cross. And the world says, put on all of these things. And Paul says, no, 
tear those all off. That's not who you are. That's not who your neighbor is. And that's not what this world is about. Put on Jesus Christ and put on the full armor of God and live by the power God's given you. Church, it starts with our minds. What we think about, what we read in our scriptures, and what we hold to will change the trajectory of our life. Because the power of the word of God still works. We need to know the truth. We need to put off desperation and hold on to hope. God is still in charge. And he is our king. He is our commander. He is our ruler. He is our hope. So when you read Romans 12 and 13, it may be this list of imperative. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. And we get overwhelmed. No, stop. Live for God and those things become second nature. Live for the world and they become heavy bags that you carry the rest of your life. God is our king. And no matter what happens in this country or our world in the next few years, I'm not despondent. Because one day God's going to blow the whistle and he's going to say everybody out of the pool and he's going to take us home. No matter how rough it gets, I'm building my hope and my life on that. God's in charge. So church, today, understand this. Live by grace. It's what saved you. And it is what will sustain you. And not only sustain you, it will offer life to those you encounter, whether they're your enemy or your brother. That allows us today to to worship our king. That allows us to present ourselves to God and say, God, teach me how to live by grace rather than by law and restriction. Teach me to live with hope and mercy to my neighbor, not by condemnation and superiority. Allow me to even disagree with those in the political realm and say, I will serve the best of my community. I will serve my God. And when I serve my God, I'm the best citizen there will ever be because I'll choose love over being right. And that allows us today to stand with all of our differences. It allows us to stand under one thing. King Jesus rules. And I will choose today how I'm going to respond to my king. And when I respond to my king well, I will always respond to you with love. And that's what we want. And that's what we're called to. So today we present our lives as worship. We present our hearts before our king so that we can show the world what the good, acceptable, and pure will of God is. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.